the Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the first chapter. Glory Glory to you, O Lord. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. On the five Sundays in Lent this year, the Old Testament readings will focus us on what are sometimes called the five major covenants in the Old Testament. So, so as not to be lost for five Sundays of Old Testament readings, we've got a question to ask, right? What in the world is the Bible talking about when the Bible talks about covenants? Well, for starters, it helps to realize that covenants aren't just something in the Bible because you can also find them in places like the business world and in the diplomatic world. But no matter the world, to have a covenant, which is a contract or an agreement of some sort, which establishes the terms of some kind of a relationship or other, you need, first of all, two people or groups of people. And secondly, you need promises and commitments that are made between the people, and most often, but not every single time, you also need some kind of a symbol or a sign or something to indicate that you are a party in the covenant and in this particular relationship to each other that the covenant creates. And so, though we may not use the word, Kathy and I essentially have a covenant that established a relationship with our bank last spring as they promised to give us the money to buy our current house and we promised to pay it back at an agreed upon schedule and an agreed upon interest rate and the sign of that covenant is, well, boatloads of papers that we signed. In a legal sense, but also far more profoundly in a sacred sense, Kathy and I also have a covenant with each other based on mutual commitments and mutual promises that we made to each other 45 years ago this June. Gosh, we were young. When we entered into a covenant relationship called marriage. And the legal sign was again a document we signed, but a sacred sign, the powerful sign, the carry with you wherever you go sign was in the symbol we gave to each other, the circle with no beginning, or ending as a sign of our promise to love without end. Though not counted as one of the five major Old Testament covenants, there had nevertheless been a covenant of sorts between Adam and Eve and God, in which God promised them life, promised them the earth, promised them each other, promised them everything they needed, and asked for but one commitment on their part, do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you eat of it, you will die. 
both the garden with all its creatures and that one tree with its forbidden fruit were in their own ways sacred signs of the covenant, the garden a sign of God's creating and providing grace and the tree and its fruit a symbol of just that one commitment of Adam and Eve in return. That one commitment, of course, proved to be just just one commitment too many. As rather than listening to and obeying God, Adam and Eve listened to and obeyed the tempter, the serpent who reasoned with them. What could be wrong with knowing good and evil? Shouldn't everyone know right from wrong besides? Obeying God is fine as far as it goes, but wouldn't you really rather be like God? Wouldn't you really rather like to be gods yourselves? They thought that sounded positively tasty. Unfortunately, it turned out that what God had said was true. People wanting to be their own damned gods eventually is an avenue that leads not to life but to death. And not just death for themselves, but also for others, and even for creation itself. Note to self, it is still true. People wanting to be their own damned gods, inevitably, is an avenue that leads not to life but to death, for themselves and for others and for creation itself. Genesis, the death of selves and others and creation, culminated in the flood, a story we've turned into a children's story, although, of course, that can seem just a tiny bit of an odd thing, as it's a story in which the result of the sin of all leads to the flood and the death of all. All people, save Noah and his immediate family who were saved, and all animals who couldn't swim, save for the two-by-twos fortunate enough to have been gathered by grace onto the ark. The sin of all, in other words, global sin, in Genesis, it turns out, has global consequences, not just for humanity, but for all creatures and even creation itself, which, of course, too, is still true. This flood story, by the way, like all of the powerfully truth-telling stories in Genesis 1 to 11, is a story that, um, in my understanding, falls under the realm of stories that are true in their meanings, true in the deep truths that they tell, but not perhaps completely historically true literally. I mean, I imagine there was historically a flood a huge one, which seemed as far as one could see to cover the whole world. In fact, the ancient Hebrews, it turns out, weren't the only ones who told stories about such a thing. The ancient Hebrews, too, believed that every single thing that happens happens because God specifically made it happen. The ancient Hebrews, in other words, along with my homeowner's insurance policy, for that matter, believed that floods and tornadoes and hails and derechos are acts of God. My insurance company, of course, interprets that to mean that the damage to my house was not my fault. It was essentially God's fault, but that's okay because I'm covered. The ancient Hebrews, on the other hand, believed the opposite. Yes, the flood was God's act, but it was humanity's fault, for sin leads to death. 
Which takes us to our text for today and the first of what are sometimes called the five major covenants in the Old Testament. And one commitment from Adam and Eve having been just one too many, God actually asks no, asks no commitments or promises from Noah in the New Covenant. As in this case, every single commitment, every single promise is made by God. One sided covenants like that, which establish the terms of a relationship only with promises from one of the parties, are, of course, depending on your perspective, either pure foolishness or pure grace. Or if you happen to be St. Paul, they are actually purely both, for in his words, even the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of the world. So all the promises are promised, all the commitments are committed, all the agreements are agreed to by God to Noah. But this is important, not just for Noah, but for all people, not just all people, but all creatures and all creation. I will never destroy the whole world with a flood like this again, God says. Seemingly, I mean, is this even possible? That seemingly God has some regret? When Melissa was just a little girl, I spanked her once. She had sinned, and the punishment was appropriate. It was not administered angrily. It was administered justly, just like the spankings I had been spanked with growing up were just. I deserved every single spanking I got. That said, when I struck my daughter that one time, she looked at me with a look I had never seen before. And I do not believe I had, I had sinned against her. I can even tell you the Bible verses that back me up. But the look on her face um, as she looked at me broke my heart. And I said to myself, I will never do that again. There are better ways. In perhaps similar vein, I imagine that God the Father Almighty, knowing that the flood was just, but knowing now, too, that it, it broke his heart, said to God's self, there are better ways. And so God said to Noah, but for all, I will never do that again. The sign of this covenant promise being the rainbow that God hung in the sky. Whenever I see the rainbow, God said, I will remember my promise, which on first hearing sounds very odd, right? I mean, like without the rainbow, God would forget God's promise? No, of course not. The rainbow for not just God to see, but for us to see too, reminds us to remember, always to remember that God always remembers and honors and keeps God's promises. What Genesis and our insurance adjusters both call acts of God, of course, still do occur, and seemingly, evidently, more frequently these days. And they have always in some way been a part of the rhythm of God's created order, although climate scientists actually now seem to be taking God's side on the matter, observing with the book of Genesis that worldwide sin against the planet, for example, can have worldwide consequences that are deadly. 
That said, one of the reasons we do hold on to the biblical flood story so tightly and that we do tell it to our children, that we must tell it to our children, is because it reminds us to hope for, to look for, to expect even the rainbows after the storms. And to believe that even in the midst of tempests, a new tomorrow in God's hands awaits us. That's a message as important as ever in these times when the flood is not wet and pouring down, but viral and evolving even as it recedes. Look for the rainbow. Expect the rainbow and the new tomorrow which is in God's hands and which does await us. Awaits us when exactly, of course, is a question that reintroduces the dynamic of human behavior into the story. Peter, in our second lesson, links the story of God saving Noah and his family and that boatload of creatures from the waters of the flood to the story of another covenant, a covenant made with you in the saving waters of your baptism, at which, if you were an infant like most of us were, there were a number of promises made to you and for you, but there were no promises made by you. Relationship was established, and you didn't do any of the establishing. And there you go again. The saving wisdom of the saving foolishness of grace. Your parents and godparents that day made a promise. The church gathered that day made a promise, but most of the promises that day were promises God made. Claiming you as God's child, for in the waters of baptism you were and remained married into the saving death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, through which the sin and death which did separate all of everyone ever since Adam and Eve from God doesn't, by God, have the power to do so anymore. For in the spirit of the Christ of Good Friday, sinners, their sins put to death, are forgiven. And in the spirit of the Christ of Easter Sunday, the dead are then raised from death to life, new life. Luther said that that resurrection to new life is not just for heaven someday, but, but for here on earth every day, as each day is begun in remembrance of baptism, and thus, thus in remembrance of grace and mercy which birthed us, which, when received anew each day, raised us up to live anew each day, not now as wannabe gods over our neighbors or over the earth, but as instruments of God's presence and purposes and love for our neighbors and love for the world we live in. Or as he puts it in the small catechism, what does baptism mean for daily living? It means that the old Adam in us, with all sins and evil desires, is to be drowned and die through daily sorrow for sin and through repentance. And on the other hand, that daily a new person is to come forth and rise up to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. Well, where's that written, Luther asks, and then he writes, St. Paul says in Romans 6, we were buried with Christ through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Mark takes us to the waters of Jesus' baptism, where he was the one upon whom the Spirit was poured out and the one for whom the promise, you are my child, 
was proclaimed, only then seemingly curiously again to Mark, nevertheless immediately and purposefully driven by the Spirit, not coaxed, driven by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, during which, hello darkness, Adam and Eve's old friend. He was tempted by the tempter, by Satan, by the one who, according to Matthew and Luke anyway, Mark doesn't really say much, by the one who didn't tell him not to go out and be the savior of the world, but told him rather to do so not for crying out loud by suffering for the world, but rather by overpowering the world, by gathering into his arms the oh-so-tasty-and-delicious-looking fruit of the world's kind of power. And guess what, Jesus? He said, I can help. Come on, Jesus, he said, not in so many words, but clearly between the lines and beneath the words. Come on, Jesus, you're the Son of God and the Savior of the world, for God's sake at least. Well, so God said. That being the case, Jesus... You're not the one to be suffering. That's idiocy. Those who oppose you, those who would impeach you, those who want you dead are the ones you need to make sure suffer. That, Jesus, is the way in the world it is. Satan, of course, in that moment was doing something Satan rarely does. Satan was speaking the truth. Overpowering others with overpowering power. Then to consign them to one kind or another of subservience and or suffering beneath me or out of my sight is indeed in the world the way it is. Satan, of course, didn't need to tell Jesus that. Jesus knew all about that. It's just that the way of the world, that is to say sin, that is to say, the way of precisely not God, though it thoroughly warms Satan's heart, broke the Father's heart. The Father who had said to himself, there's a better way. And here we are, the first Sunday in Lent, and here he is, the, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, turning his back to Satan and the world's ways to turn to the way of the Father by turning to the way of the cross. For indeed there is a way better way than the way of the world, and that is the way of sacrificial love for God and for the world. It is, of course, still true. Amen.